Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. I'm a cardiologist from Cambridge and the digital media editor here at Heart. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Panayota Mitropoulou from Southampton, who, along with co-authors Reinhold, Papadopoulou and Gruner Heger, have written an excellent paper which is called Shared Decision-Making in Cardiology, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. I really enjoyed our conversation. There are some links in the show notes that I do encourage you to go and click and read, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you very much for joining me for this episode of the Heart Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Yotta Mitropoulou, who is working in Southampton, and we're going to discuss her paper, which is called Shared Decision-Making in Cardiology, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Yotta, would you be able to introduce yourself for the Heart Podcast audience? Uh, where do you work and what do you do? Thank you very much for inviting me. It is a pleasure to join you. Um, my name is Yotta Mitropoulou. I am an SD7 cardiology registrar in Wessex Deanery. My subspecialty is adult congenital heart disease, and I'm currently in Southampton. And as I say, you've written a really nice paper. So it's a systematic review and a meta-analysis all about shared decision-making um, in cardiology, which is a term I was vaguely familiar with. And I think it's probably a practice that we do subconsciously as doctors when we're talking to patients, particularly about procedures, surgeries, things that may be required. But maybe you can give us a little bit more of a, a formal introduction to shared decision-making. Um, first of all, what is it and why is it something useful and desirable to have in our practice? Of course. So said decision-making is a collaborative process between patients and healthcare providers. It involves both of them working together to achieve a health decision that is based on the one hand on the best evidence and on the other hand on the patient's needs, values, preferences. In said decision-making, clinicians and patients work together to understand the patient's situation and to determine the best way to address it. And it can be described as a conversation between the clinician and the patient in which they both figure out how to approach different management decisions and options. It is certainly desirable as it facilitates patient involvement. It allows patients to take an active role in decisions regarding their health. It can reduce healthcare practice variations. It can reduce cost as well, as often patients choose less invasive options. And importantly, it improves sustainability of the healthcare system, I think, by supporting the patient to take ownership of their care. I think also it benefits the clinician as it helps build the relationship of trust with the patient. And if done well, I think can be quite deeply satisfying. And maybe you can give us a bit of background to this systematic review and meta-analysis. What was it that prompted you to write it? What sort of evidence was missing, did you think? Sure. So both myself and my colleagues who co-authored this paper have been involved in projects and audits to assess the implementation of said decision-making in our departments. And as part of these projects, we individually reviewed the literature which supports different said decision-making tools. And the idea to look formally at the literature and performance and systematic review followed this. There is evidence um, on the use of said decision-making in cardiology, but most studies are modest inside and heterogeneous, and therefore we felt that a meta-analysis was needed to summarise the evidence. And can you tell us a little bit about other areas of medicine, perhaps where shared decision-making is more commonly used? Are we sort of falling behind other areas? Where can we look to for guidance? Sure. During this meta-analysis, we came across evidence for using said decision-making in other specialties, 
For example, we found quite a lot of evidence in gynecology or in oncology, such as prostate cancer treatment. I'm probably not the best person to tell you how it is actually put in practice. And with regards to said this is in making a cardiology, I think it varies quite significantly. And in the trusts of work personally, one of the aspects that I have seen based decision tools being used more consistently and perhaps as part of departmental protocols is ICD insertion. But my personal experience is that in other areas of cardiology, perhaps it is applied less consistently depending more on the individual healthcare professional. And just to divert for a second, there was a very nice editorial which was written by Drs. Locke and Lewis, and I'll put a link um, in the show notes to that. But in essence, they describe sort of four steps, which I think you also talk about in your review. So firstly, inviting the patient to participate and assessing their preference of degree in involvement in decision-making. And then the clinician will outline the treatment options available, including the risks and benefits, preferably with the patient decision aid, which you've just talked about there and then elicit the patient's preferences, values, and priorities, and then finally summarize the patient's choice and treatment decision. Um, and that's sort of a, a nice way of thinking about this pathway, I guess, at least from my point of view. Um, getting back to your paper then, how did you do your research? What sort of methods did you use? And did you cover the whole of cardiology, or were you um, sticking to cardiac surgery or device implantation? Uh, how did you do the actual piece of work? So we did a comprehensive literature search on said decision making in all fields of cardiology. Okay. We decided to include only randomized controlled trials, and we included trials that reported outcomes of decisional conflict, decisional satisfaction, decisional anxiety, and decisional regret. Those were our primary outcomes. And we also had the secondary outcome of patient knowledge. We chose those outcomes purely because they were the ones that were more consistently reported. And as I said, we included all fields of cardiology in our search. We considered fields that are practiced by cardiologists, both at the primary level, potentially, as well as a secondary or tertiary center level. And we found studies on a range of conditions, including anticoagulation in atrial fibrillation, chest pain, coronary artery disease, devices, as well as more advanced heart failure strategies like uh, left ventricular assist devices. On the whole, we included 18 randomized controlled trials uh, with a total of just over 4,000 patients. And perhaps you can just illustrate the paper by telling us about some of the studies that you included, any you like really, and perhaps some mm -hmm. of the decision aids that they used to help inform shared decision making. Sure. As I mentioned, it was a total of 18 studies. And two of them were very useful um, as they were the largest studies. They randomized 900 patients each. The rest of the studies were more modest in size, including up to 500 patients, but some of them had much less than that. And most of them compared a decision aid or intervention to increase their decision making with our usual care. Most studies were hostel based and the majority were single center studies. And all of them were, we were conducted exclusively in high income countries. So in the US, the UK and Canada. Um, with regard to the decision aids used, the studies used a variety of different decision aids, uh, printed form, video, online resources, coaching, or a combination of those. Um, and overall, there was no pattern to suggest that one type of decision aid might be better than others. Okay. Um, and in your paper, figure five is really excellent and informative, I found, and, and summarizes your findings. 
Um, can you just talk us through it for the benefit of those people who haven't yet been able to, to read your paper? So in this figure, we'll summarize the final findings. Firstly, we present the spectrum of cardiac conditions that we included and the different interventions that we included, which we already discussed. We then present the forest plots for the two outcomes that we found a significant improvement in, the primary outcome of decisional conflict and the secondary outcome of patient knowledge. Amongst the five outcomes that I mentioned that we assessed, the decisional conflict and anxiety, regret, satisfaction, and patient knowledge, we found statistically significant difference in two of those, the decisional conflict and the patient knowledge. The decisional conflict was assessed by 13 randomized control trials using a decisional conflict scale in a total of 3,700 patients. And overall, the interventions to increase their decision-making had a significant effect on reducing decisional conflict compared to usual care. Uh, and the standardized mean difference for that was minus 0.2. With regards to patient knowledge, 11 randomized control trials reported data on this, including just over 2,000 patients. And overall, we found a significant increase in patient knowledge with a mean difference of 0.47. So we conclude that said decision-making is effective in a variety of different settings in cardiology, from general to more advanced and that numerous tools are effective in reducing decisional conflict and increasing patient knowledge in these conditions. And just for me, as somebody who is really an amateur in this area, how do you measure something like um, decisional conflict and, and patient knowledge? Are these done on questionnaires or how is that quantified by the researchers? So decisional conflict was quite consistently measured with a decisional conflict scale, which is um, a formalized way, has been used in many trials, and vastly most of the trials use the same scale. So that was fairly easy to compare between different studies. Uh, patient knowledge was um, tested by different questionnaires that each of the studies developed um, with just questions on basically the information that they gave to the patients. Anxiety, regret, and satisfactions were not as uniformly um, reported in different studies, but as a matter of fact, not that many studies reported on those outcomes. And, and just to finish on decisional conflict, so, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess it's self-evident what it means, that, you know, the, the patient wants one you know, method of treatment and the doctor suggests another. Is that what you mean by it? And reducing decisional conflict is where you have both parties in agreement more? Yes, and the patient at the end of the study, basically, um, it is quite a long questionnaire uh, with different aspects to it. But I think that the bottom line is, as you say, pretty self-explanatory. The patient is quite happy with the decision that they made, ultimately. Okay, and they haven't got regrets about other things that they didn't choose, I'm assuming. Okay. Yes, yeah. So it all sounds very promising, doesn't it, for cardiology? I think so. From what you've concluded in your research. But what do you think should be the next steps then in order to perhaps introduce this more formally into practice in cardiology? So as we know, cardiology is one of the most evidence-based specialties, and, and we thrive on producing high-quality evidence on the best treatments for our patients. And this is, of course, admirable and important. But I feel that there must be a paradigm shift where we realize that it is not just important to tailor treatment to the patient's pathophysiology and demographics, but we also have to tailor it to their preferences and priorities. And I think that this approach extends well beyond the purposes of increasing compliance, although, of course, compliance is an important benefit. 
but ultimately, I believe that the said decision-making approach aspires to reduce the patient's anxiety to help them gain and maintain the feeling of control in their lives through dealing with disease. I, I feel there is a long way for us to go to understand how to deliver said decision-making, which outcomes matter to patients most, and push research and clinical practice forward to make those changes. I think we do need better evidence on how to apply said decision-making in cardiology, and then this needs to be followed by training on the best techniques to achieve it. And, and finally, it is important to remember that said decision-making should not just be down to the individual healthcare professional. I think it's crucial that it is a systematic effort to increase it, and that its department and its trust should look at how said decision-making techniques can become incorporated into departmental protocols, so that then said decision-making is applied uniformly as opposed to just based on individual practice. I mean, it does seem to have potentially large benefits, doesn't it? Just going back to earlier in the podcast when you, you know, you talked about uh, how it can, as you say, reduce patient anxiety and decisional conflict, reduce overuse of treatment options that don't have clear benefits, potentially reducing healthcare practice variations as well, uh, and improving sustainability of the healthcare system. I mean, it all sounds pretty good to me. Um, anything else you'd like to share, Yotta, before we wrap up? I would like to discuss possible online training for said decision-making, um, for example, direct to our, uh, our audience to um, some e-learning. That is the um, e-learning for healthcare platform that gives some good resources. There is also some said decision-making tools on the NICE guidelines that are applicable for cardiology. And uh, you already discussed the editorial briefly, but I think the editorial uh, written on our paper is definitely worth reading. And finally, before we wrap up, I would definitely want to thank my co-authors. This was a team effort and I couldn't have done it without them. Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining me. It's been um, a real education for me. I've really enjoyed having a chat with you. As I say, the paper will be made freely available for a few weeks after the podcast comes out. And so I encourage everybody to go and give it a read and uh, look at some of the links that we've talked about. And uh, once again, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you.